Five. So how many people, where is uh, uh, Alice, is Bob still here? Okay, well, since he's not here, let me talk. Um, how many people actually believe Bob's story? I'm just, I mean, you're not supposed to drive your golf cart on the fairway. And this had to be like an unbelievable slice to get there. And Bob is so old, there's no way he would have seen it coming. There's just a... I'm just, I mean, you know, it makes a good story. And uh, folks, if you want attention, just ask for it. You really don't have to lie. You don't have to make up stuff. It's just a thought, Alice. So we're in Genesis chapter 25. Thanks for letting me wander just a little bit last week. Tell you about our (laughs) Israel trip. And uh, the goal today is to finish what I was supposed to do last week. And that is chapter 25, so turn there if you're not there already. Verse 1 talks about, as you know, uh, Abraham taking another wife. Her name is Keturah. We had a discussion last week about the timing of it all, concluding we don't know. But what we do know is that all variations on the basic theme of marriage meet with consequences. And that God's theme, this is incontrovertible. This is clear. Genesis 2, one man being joined to one woman and the two being irreversibly bound. Any other variation on the theme does never, never leads to the forfeiture of God's love and concern, but surely engenders consequences, the likes of which we will see even as this chapter plays out. So now in verse 2, we read about the sons, six of them, born through the partnership with Abraham and Keturah. You see the names there in verse 2. You probably recognize one of them, Midian. Remember uh, Moses' father-in-law was Jethro the Midianite. So this would be the line from which he came. Uh, All of the ones mentioned in verse 2 are going to come to be bitter enemies of Israel. The present conflict in the Middle East between Arabs and Jews can be traced way back into Genesis. Through the fathering of children, the children are not the mistake, but the means by which they were brought into existence was surely outside of the will of God. God never ordained polygamy or he never ordained um, women on the side, as with concubines, that kind of stuff. and even in those days, I guess they thought you can just you can be married to one and have simply a physical relationship with another, and everything's fine. Uh, that's one of the number one lies of the father of lies that the sexual relationship can be reduced to pure physicality, and that there's nothing else that happens. So I got a call last night from a lady I know, and uh, she was distressed spoke about a situation, and this is not a young lady, an older lady, and she and her husband are, are older. He uh, entered into a relationship with another woman. This woman was sharing with me over the phone, and the other woman seemed to be quite a seductress, also an older woman, uh, but it looked like she deliberately had a plan to um, arouse the attention of this particular man, Um, You can read about people like that in the book of Proverbs, by the way. 
So I suppose he persuaded himself, ah, you know, I love my wife, but this is just a physical kind of a thing to consenting adults. So they entered into the relationship, and it wasn't quite that simple, apparently. Uh, this lady began to take all this as an indication of this man's love for her. Well, he didn't love her. He thought they could both pleasure, you know, they can pleasure themselves and no strings attached, this kind of thing. So she began to speak of love and all the rest, and um, a woman is more prone to that, you you know. um, A woman will uh, sometimes give herself physically to, to get love, and a man will speak words of love in, in order to get the physical component. It's just the way we operate, generally. So he had no interest in loving her whatsoever. Uh, well, and he told her so, but she would take no for an answer. She would not take no for an answer. And she began to uh, threaten him. I will tell your wife. I will call your place of work. And then she began to extort money from him. And uh, hush money. And then she began to stalk him. And then she finally did tell his wife. And his wife, uh, when that happens, uh, it's like um, the it's like the loss. It's like suffering a loss, like a death. It's the death. It's the dying of trust and of hope. It's the dying of uh, any uh, sense of worth as a woman um, it's, grieve- it's grieving just like a, an actual death and you know then the man wonders why his wife can't get over it because he's said he's sorry you know and <laughs> this is not how naive I think people are uh, anyway the woman is unrelenting even now though the wife knows and they have to get lawyers and restraining orders and there are phone calls, and they have to change their phones and the locks on their door, and they're contemplating having to move out of the area. What's my point? And they, the lady said, what do I do? I shared a few things. I did the best I could. But really, and there are certain consequences that you can't do anything about. Now, uh, the, both the man and the woman, uh, the husband and the wife, are Christians. I, I know this. Uh, They'll never suffer the consequence of God forsaking them. But there are plenty of consequences. Legal, financial, emotional, relational, all all the rest, psychological. I don't have answers to make it all go away. The point is it's not going to go away. Why do I share that? Not to hurt anybody, but just to emphasize Father knows best. When he says not to do certain things. It's not to cramp our style. It's so that we can live life better. Uh, he's the giver of life, so he knows, the, he knows how best to, to live life. So this idea, concubine, a woman on the side, a mistress, which is quite prevalent in our day-to-day, um, it's never that way. You give a piece of yourself to the other person. You're, you become fragmented in, in your soul. And there are always, always consequences. Um, At the point of temptation, it's hard to understand those things. So I encourage men and women, men in particular, don't get to the point of temptation. Persuade yourself of how weak you are, because you are.
and don't go near. So you draw the line in the sand way back. See the seductive lady and paraded herself in a pool and a bikini, and he would make it his business to be there just just to look. Ah, just to look. And then she came over and invited him for a walk around the lake just to talk, just to talk. And then she invited him over to her place for dinner, just for dinner. See, so come on. You know, the line has to be drawn in, in the sand. And no guy should have private time with any other woman than his wife. Almost ever. That's a fanatical extreme point of view, isn't it? <laughs> You've got to protect yourself. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You will not make the right decision, nor I, at the point of being too close to a tempting situation. Therefore, don't get close. No time alone. Watch touching. I like touch. I think touch is important. I like to do this. I've said this a million times, but not the frontal hugs with another woman. No way. And uh, women have to learn to respect that too. Be careful. Um, Touch. Never, ever a private alone time. Never counseling alone, alone with a woman without someone else present. Never. Never riding in a car alone with a woman. Want to hear a, a crazy story? Years and years ago, we were invited to the pastor's ranch to hunt, shoot dove and stuff like that, messing around. We were kind of carpooling, and we stopped off at a restaurant to eat, and uh, Bethel, Mrs. Morgan, met us there at the time, and then uh, we were all going to just pop into cars and go the rest of the way to the ranch. was not very far, and so... Uh, Mrs. Morgan popped into the car I was driving. We we were just mounting up, but nobody else did. So what am I going to (laughs) do? You talk about a dilemma. I told her, Bethel, I love you. We've known each other for years and years. It's not you, it's me. It's just the thing I do. Get out of the car. (laughs) I actually did that, just horsing around, just horsing around. I don't know what people think, but uh, uh, I want to be protected. Uh, if I'm, I was ever accused of something, I want people to know, well, I, I never saw him in a car with another woman. Uh, you won't. Um, one time at home, my next-door neighbor uh, knocked on the door, young woman. She doesn't live there anymore. She lived next door, a young, attractive woman. Nobody's home, just me. I didn't answer the door. Isn't that weird? I'm telling you, I hid. I, I hid. It's, it's, it's crazy. Who knows, who knows what's going on? Well, what if she's in distress or something? Yeah, there's other people. <laughs> I, did not answer, I didn't answer the door. I just, I, 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 I just didn't do it. I thought, you know, I'd rather offend my next-door neighbor than... I don't want to be in the house here alone with, a, uh, you know... A, a, uh, another woman. If my wife was there, it'd be different. It's not because I'm so spiritual. It's the opposite. It's not because I'm strong. I'm weak. Uh, uh, a wise man um, knows that he's weak, and so you don't. Anyway, so you can't enter into a physical. The way God made sex, uh, it's it's multifaceted. It, it's it's intercourse in all respects. 
it's not just physical. It's, it's a blend. And to think you can just extricate yourself from it without getting burnt is just one of the lies of the evil one. That's a misunderstanding. You know, this is a sex-crazed culture, and yet there's such little understanding of sex. People think they just have a one-nighter. It's interesting to me, such an emphasis on sex and so little understanding. That's not what happens. It's not just physiology that's going on over there. Maybe because the Father tells us this. We don't listen to what God, has to, what God has to say. So all the concubine stuff, it's in the Bible, but it's not condoned by the Bible. The Bible is just reporting human nature, but it's not supporting this as an alternative. So anyway, she bears him these sons. They end up becoming bitter enemies of Israel. This accounts for the problem in the Middle East today. Yes, Tom? Yeah, yeah, uh, you know, um, who's he going to marry? So th- these were good things that came from a descendant of Midian, right? Yeah, it's not black and white. It's not all bad. There are good contributions as well, and yet we still have the international co- conflict we have today because of this. This is not to indict, in this case, all Arab peoples by no means, but I don't think I have to tell you about the conflict between Arabs and Jews down to this very day, the conflict uh, would not be the way it is, but for this. So then you have verse 3, more names uh, of the descendants of uh, the, the children between Abraham and Keturah. And verse 4, uh, you have the sons of Midian who are named, all the sons of Keturah. What's the point? Well, God made a promise to Abraham. He said, I'll make you the father of a multitude of nations. This proves that God kept his word. That's what we're reading about now. Genesis 25 brings us to the end of Abraham's life. It's a transition chapter. The focus will be Isaac. It's been Abraham, then it'll be Isaac. Until we get there, this is a summation of all the kids that came through Abraham's line and all of the nations, the multitude of nations that develop from Abraham's Line. So now verse 5, Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. Now that's an interesting thing. Boom, it just hits you. <laughs> You're reading about the uh, descendants of Keturah, the concubine with Abraham. But Abraham gave all his stuff to Isaac. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? It just hits you. And I'll tell you why. Here's how Genesis works. It starts out with lots and lots of people. Um, the whole realm of the world's population, you know, after people, Adam and Eve, were fruitful and multiplied. So let's say the number of people in the world was, were this, this big. And then God narrows down, selects from the people a line of the Messiah because people sinned and God is going to give us a solution to our sin, namely a Savior. So he narrows down the world population to Abraham. So the focus was on Abraham. Now it's going to be on Isaac. And then you'll see it's going to be on Jacob and the line of Messiah even more precisely narrowed and defined. Why? So that you and I did not have to make a blind leap from logic to faith when we accepted Jesus as the Messiah. Because he's in the line, see, of Abraham and then Isaac. He didn't peel off with Ishmael, then Jacob. It didn't peel off with Esau. See how it's narrowing down, narrowing down. So if someone claims to be the Messiah... We can distinguish a false Messiah from the true one because the true Messiah comes from this line of messianic promise. So that's kind of what's going on 
in Genesis. So now we're going to talk about Isaac. And Abraham gave all of his stuff to Isaac, and, and not to Ishmael. He gave his stuff to Isaac, the child of promise. Now that doesn't mean uh, Ishmael, who became the father of the Arab nations, was was um, uh, punished or um, ignored by God. So Genesis 17.20, I'll just read it. As for Ishmael, I've heard you. Uh, Abraham prayed, oh God, what about Ishmael? He's my son too. God said, I've heard you. I will bless him. I'll make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall become the father of 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this season next year. So when that was written, Genesis 17, verse 20, Isaac wasn't born yet. Ishmael was. God said, Abraham, don't worry. I'll bless him. I'll make a great nation out of him. Twelve princes will come from him, but he won't be the child of promise. It'll be Isaac, not yet even born, who will be born to you next year, who will be the child of promise. And so you're asking, why did God make this decision to choose Isaac's line rather than Ishmael's? Hang in there. We're going to talk about it. That sounds like a rather arbitrary uh, thing. That sounds like an unfair choice. What did Ishmael ever do. That sounds like Danny and I were talking about, this is divine election. Uh, You know, God just made the decision and people have nothing to do with it. And this seems very unfair of God. Well, hang in there. We'll explain in just a second. But anyway, it's very clear. God says, my covenant I'll establish with Isaac, not Ishmael. So verse six, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. So they were not in the line of promise, but he gave them gifts while he was still living. And he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. So he separated uh, children of the flesh from the sons of promise. And he sent them to the east. So that became, so you're talking about east of Canaan. East and southeast, those are the Arab nations. So we're talking about uh, Egypt and Jordan and Syria and Lebanon and Saudi Arabia and Iraq but not Iran. The Iranians are not Arab peoples. They're Persian peoples. It's the ancient empire of Elam, E-L-A-M. They're the Elamites. So sometimes we confuse the Iranians with uh, Arab peoples because they're Muslim. Yes, they're Muslim, but they're not Arab Muslims. They're Persian Muslims in Iran. So Uh, Folks to the east of the land of Canaan. Verse 7, these are all the years of Abraham's life he lived. He lived 175 years. And he breathed his last. He died in a ripe old age. He was an old man satisfied with life. And he was gathered to his people. What does that mean? Gathered to his people. Some say it's just a euphemism for dying and being buried. Instead of saying he died and was buried, euphemistically we'll say he was gathered to his people. But No, no, that's wrong. It's a very precise technical phrase which speaks of the reality of life after death. If Abraham was literally gathered to his people, they should have taken his bones back to Ur of the Chaldees. That's where his people were and bury him there. You'll see he was not buried there. This is an Old Testament expression that introduces to us the fact that they believed in eternity. He was gathered to his people. His, his spirit lived on when his body was laid to rest. So, folks, the notion of eternal life is given to us in seed form in the Old Testament. It is developed fully in the New Testament, but it is birthed in the Old Testament. I say that because there's nothing new in the New Testament. Nothing. 
Everything in the New Testament is in seed form in the Old Testament. But the New Testament fills it in and makes it precise and clear. So our notion of eternal life today is much more substantial than the one they had then. But they surely had a notion of life after death. He was gathered to his people, but not buried where he's from. Because look, verse 9, his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite, facing Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. So remember, he bought that burial place for Sarah, his wife. That's where he was buried. It's in present-day Hebron, Hebron or Hebron. Uh, by the way, do you remember a few months ago, three young uh, Israelis were kidnapped and then kill, killed? And just a week or two ago, the two of the terrorists were found in, who, who did that were found and killed, all in Hebron, this particular place we're reading about. By the way, uh, they're the Smiths and I think some others who I went to Israel with on this last trip. Um, it's very likely that the guys who found those terrorists were in the unit we gave candy to. Uh, Moran called me and he said, uh, he's the guy we work with over there, he said, I can't tell you too much, but let's just say you're familiar with the unit who was involved in this uh, strike in, in Hebron. So those are guys who did that kind of thing and we gave them Tootsie Rolls. Yeah. So anyway, notice Isaac and Ishmael came to their dad's funeral. Sometimes weddings and funerals bring family together. Sometimes they make things worse. Oh, my goodness. We've had fistfights at, wedding, at weddings here. I'm not kidding you. Yeah. Yeah, we've actually had fistfights. Really interesting. Holy Toledo. Uh, this is the last time Isaac and Ishmael are ever seen together. They don't cooperate. They become at terrible odds with one another. But they get together for their dad's funeral. Verse 11, it came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. Isaac lived in that place, Be'er Lachai Ro'i, which means the well of the living one who sees me, who sees me. So God continues to bless Isaac. Look, remember, line of promised Messiah, passing from Abraham now to Isaac, and God continues to bless him. Abraham dies, but God remains faithful to carry out his plans through the line of promise. Verse 12, these are the records of the generations of Ishmael. Again, why are we reading all this? So as for us to be persuaded, God kept his word to Abraham, father of a multitude of nations. So here's more uh, about Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian Sarah's maid bore to him. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names in order of their birth. And you have all these names. And if you count them, you'll find their 12 princes according to their tribes. So says verse 16. And that is a fulfillment of the promise God gave in Genesis chapter 17, verse 20. Abraham, don't worry. I'll bless him. He'll be a great nation. 12 princes will come from him. And here are their specific names. Verse 17, these are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137. He breathed his last and died. And notice again, he was gathered to his people. Now, when we read gathered to his people, we don't know gathered where. (laughs) Eternally with 
the giver of life or eternally apart. We don't know that. Those are the only options. You know, a lot of people today think when you die, that's it. In fact, there's a theology called annihilationism, meaning when you die, you're annihilated. Your soul, your spirit, if you have one, it's just annihilated with you. Therefore, it leads to a philosophy of life. If that's the case, you might as well get all the gusto. This is all there is. If it feels good, do it, because there is nothing after this. That's a terribly uh, uh, deceptive point. That's it's not true. We are going to be gathered to our people. What people? Well, there's only two groups. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son shall not see eternal life. You see what I mean? So I want to be gathered with those who inherit eternal life, don't you? The only other option is to be gathered with those who eternally are separated from the giver of life. Can you imagine living forever with needs that remain unsatisfied? Think about it. So, for instance, I'm standing up here now. I'll stand in the next class, and then I'll look forward to sitting down later today. What if, what if that need was never satisfied? I'm getting a little hungry now. I'm looking forward to pigging out late. I mean, what a poor choice of words for a Jewish guy. Uh, <laughs> looking forward to nourishing myself, nourishing the temple later. Uh, but, <laughs> but what if that need is not, is not, sati- you know, not satisfied? Think about it. I mean, if you cut yourself off from the one who is the satisfier of all human needs, then you have human needs that remain unsatisfied. That would be hell. That would be hell. I don't want to be gathered to those people. I know you don't either. So anyway, uh, verse 17, they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is east of Egypt. As one goes towards Assyria, he settled in defiance of his relatives. Now, verse 19, these are the records of the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, son of the daughter of Bethuel the Aramean. Does your Bible say Aramean or something like that? You know what that is? That's northern Mesopotamia. It encompasses modern-day Syria. Syria. That's where they went to get this wife uh, for him. Modern-day Syria. I've mentioned that because Syria's in the news. When we were in Israel, we, we looked at Syria from that, you know, we were in the field, Valley of Tears, looked right over there, Syria, Syria. I read today, it was just like a, like a matter-of-fact statement in the news. Over 40 children were killed in Syria, Homs, H-O-M-S, placed in Syria by a suicide bomber. Just like that. It's, it, the world is getting so crazy. We just make a statement, 41 children killed by a suicide bomber. What? It's almost not shocking anymore, the loss of life. They just, 41 kids. That means they have 41 families. <gasps> that means 41 sets of parents and aunts and uncles and siblings. and What? Just like that. Who did it? Who knows? You have two major, you think, issues in Syria. You have the established government, and then you have rebels who want to replace it. Sounds simple. No, because the rebels are made up of a thousand different groups that hate each other. And on top of it, ISIS is there now. It's not ISIS anymore, it's just IS. They shortened it to the Islamic State, make it easier for us Americans to know them. Islamic State, they're there. Who, do, who are they against? Everybody. They're just killing everybody. 
Well, isn't it Muslims against non-Muslims? Yeah, but not just that. It's Muslims against Muslims. Why? Because you have Shiite and Sunni Muslims. They hate each other. They kill each other. I mean, it's... So we're bombing them. I don't know if it's good or bad. I don't know if it's doing anything good. I don't know. I don't know. It's one of those deals. Folks, we've created a situation for which there is no solution. When you live life apart from the giver of life, you get 41 kids being blown to pieces like it's nothing. What the heck? Who's going to fix that? You tell them. Who do you blame? Where do you begin even? Where do you? It's just a crazy thing. Anyway, from that area is where Rebecca was fetched. She was the sister of Laban, and she became Isaac's wife. He prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife. Why? Well, she was barren, no children. The Lord answered him, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. You know what's interesting? Isaac's brother Ishmael had a dozen sons, 12 princes. Isaac had none. But Isaac's in the line of promise. Isaac was chosen to be in the line of promise. If you were Isaac, would you say, God, couldn't you choose somebody else? You know, like in Fiddler on the Roof, doesn't they say that? Uh, Thank you for choosing us, but why didn't you choose someone else? You know, it doesn't look like being chosen by God gets you a whole lot of bennies. No kids. Ishmael's got 12. They have none. What's up? I mean, that's the way it is. You know, when when you're a person of God... When you belong to him, he's just not into giving us what we want as much as what we need in light of eternity. Now, that's the sticking point. I don't know eternity, neither do you. I just know now, today. What do I know about eternity? I've not been there. I don't get it. So if I'm deprived of certain things here, I think that's really bad. And if God was good, he wouldn't do that. But no, I see, I don't get it. Do you know the Bible never says that God's going to bless us with every material blessing? It says he's going to bless us with every spiritual blessing. Why? Because everything material, you can't take with you. So he wants to give us his first best, not second best. So that's why the whole health and wealth theology, you know what I mean? Just claim it and God will give you money and this, that, and the other stuff. He wants to give us what's better than that. Money is subject to theft and inflation, and it surely isn't eternal. But spiritual things, the fruit of God's spirit in us, love, joy, peace, goodness, kindness, self-control, these are eternal matters. What about health? I believe God can heal. So if he heals you of your cancer, that's great, but you're still going to die of something else. The God can do those things, but he wants to give us what's better. Eternal living. New body. See what I mean? So, so uh, you say, Isaac might say, God, I thought you loved me. Well, you, you know, yeah, he loves, but God's love is a tricky thing. It's not a pampering love. It's a perfecting love. That's the deal. He doesn't pamper us. He perfects us. So there's a whole lot of pruning, cutting away of stuff to get us ready for eternity. This is not all there is, folks. This is not all there. How long are you going to live to be? I mean, if you eat healthy, you're going to make it to 100 maybe? I doubt it. Look at you. <laughs> I mean, we're not going to go that long. I mean, so let's see you make it to 100. That's a good deal. 
I love to do this. Just do the exercise. So for me, that's, I got 35 years to go. I can hang in there for 35 years without certain stuff. Some of you have less. Good. That's good. Pretty cool. The point is, we're just passing through. That's the point. We're just passing through. And that's why our Father is willing to allow us to forfeit certain things here for the sake of gain there. You say, what gain? Let me tell you something. They prayed. Isaac prayed for his wife because she was barren. But if she wasn't barren, maybe he wouldn't have prayed. Hmm. And you know what God's after? An enhanced sense of dependence on him. That's the safest place on earth, to be fully dependent on God. But we don't like that. We like to be independent. So God will allow us to be barren without certain things, not just children, without certain things. Why? So we cry out to him and develop the relationship. So they pray. You know what's cool about Isaac? He doesn't do what his dad did. His dad's wife couldn't have kids either. Sarah. So what do they do? They come up with some fleshly plan to produce kids through uh, uh, Hagar. And there's trouble down to this very day. Isaac says, I'm going to learn from my dad's mistakes. So they don't do anything in the flesh. They pray. That's a good thing. And God answered his prayer immediately, didn't he? No. If you do the math, (laughs) I'm such a downer today, but it's true. If you do the math, 20 years. Look at this verse said he's 40 years old, right? Verse 20. Isaac was 40 when he took Rebekah. You got that? 40 years old. They had a honeymoon, right? So they had physical relations. So at 40, they began to have physical relations, but no children, right? Now look, look at verse 26. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. How much is 40 from 60? 20 years of praying. You ever pray for something for 20 years? 20 minutes? I've never prayed that long for anything. 20 years of regular conversation with God. God could have given a child in no time flat, but then I suppose Isaac would have stopped coming to God. Stop depending on him. So 20 years later, they have kids. So verse, uh, by the way, don't you find it interesting that all the wives of the patriarchs, all of them, Sarah, Abraham's wife, uh, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, later you'll see Rachel, Jacob's wife, none of them could have kids. Isn't that something? And then they had kids by God's doing. What's up? I think God wants to persuade those in the line of promise. They have nothing to do with it. I think God wants to show them it's all supernatural. What's birthed in them is from him. They didn't do it through in vitro fertilization or something like that. They can't lay claim to it. We got a good doctor. They can't do that. It's all of promise. All of promise. So verse 22, the children struggled within her. Whoa. So there were twins. There were twins. Children are struggling. Now, I don't understand what that means. Except I know the Hebrew is much stronger. It's just, they were going at it. 
And, and so from a, from a biological point of view, I don't know how that happens. A woman has, is carrying two twins, and they're like, I don't know what they're doing. Are they bumping into each other? Is it too crowded? Are they like arm wrestling? What is go- I don't know. All I know is it was apparently uncomfortable to Rebecca. And so she says, if it is so, why am I this way? You know, God, if you're there, if you're good, and if I'm pregnant and all the rest, what's going on is what she's saying. So she inquires of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. What? (laughs) This is a lady, a young lady. You know what I mean? She's not had children. Now she's got twins. They're going at it. She's uncomfortable. And you can just see, you know, like a bag of cats going in the river. There's an elbow. There's not there. And God says, here's the explanation. Two nations are in your womb. What? That's a prophecy. God is essentially saying it's way beyond anything you know. Yeah, I know it's two kids. But in essence, two nations are there. This is just a sign of the struggle that there's going to be between these two. Two nations, two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. That's odd in that culture. The older serves the younger. That's not what happens. No, 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 no. The younger serves the older. You know, the firstborn has special rights and privileges. Everyone else serves that one. But God says, no, I'm reversing all that. So that's kind of what happens here. Now, is this whole thing fair? Look, you got two babies in the womb. God says, uh... I'm going to choose, you know, they're going to be Jacob and Esau. We know that. God says, I'm going to choose Jacob. Esau's born first. He's the firstborn. But that's not the way it's going to play out. Jacob's going to get the blessing, and Esau's people are going to end up serving Jacob's. They're going to be uh, subordinate to, to Jacob. You say, that's not fair. What's up? What's up with that? Well, Romans chapter 9 comments on it. Paul does. Let me read this to you. This very episode is referred to in Romans chapter 9, verse 10 and on. Not only this, there was Rebecca also, the same Rebecca we've just read about. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born, they hadn't done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I've loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it doesn't depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So you say, this is not fair. That's right, it's not fair. That God, through divine election, would elect some and not others. Jacob, as over against Esau, it's not fair at all, but it's purely of grace. Look, I'll tell you what's fair. It's for the entire human race to be wiped out. Yeah, that would be fair. Look, God creates us in his image. What do we do? We spit in his face. We make idols instead of worshiping the true God. We kill our brothers, as with Cain and Abel. We blow God's formula for marriage off, and we take on mistresses, as with Keturah and all these other people. Um, God says not to do something. We say, no, we build a Tower of Babel to try to get to him our way instead of his. Don't ever ask God for what's fair. Here's what's fair. He just wipes us all out. Instead of that, he takes a particular man, Abram, from a particular place, Ur of the Chaldees. He moves him to a particular piece of real estate, Israel. He gives it to Abram and a particular people, the Jews. And from them comes a particular Messiah, Jesus, 
who suffers and dies and then rise up from death so as to offer salvation for no one in particular, for anyone who chooses to accept him. It's not fair. It's all of grace. All of grace. I don't understand. Danny and I were talking about this. I don't understand how divine election plays out. I don't get it. I just know it does. He chose Jacob. He did not choose Esau. And it says in Romans, while they're still in the womb. So we can't say, well, you know, Jacob was a better guy. What do you mean? They weren't even birthed yet. The text in Romans says before they could do anything good or bad. So we can't attribute it to virtue or vice. God's divine choice. Doesn't seem fair, does it? It's not fair. It's beyond that. It's a principle of grace and mercy. As it says in Romans, I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. So verse 24, when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, there were twins in her womb. The first came forth red all over like a hairy garment, and they named him Esau, which kind of means hairy. Afterward, his brother came forth with his hand holding on to Esau's heel. His name was called Jacob, which is weird because Jacob actually means God will protect. How do you get deceiver? Well, because the Hebrew word for heel sounds like Jacob. Later, he was called heel holder or one who deceptively takes what belongs to another. So the name Jacob actually came to be deceiver when it really means God will protect. And it says he was Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she gave birth to them. Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a peaceful man living in tents. Some people say this must mean Jacob was effeminate or gay. I'm not lying to you. That's actually advanced because the brother was out there doing manly hunting and stuff like that. Jacob is staying home with mama. You know, cooking. The Lord has mercy on us, doesn't he? Folks, there were hunters and there were shepherds. And the shepherds stayed back at the tent to care for the sheep. I don't think we could read into this any conclusion about Jacob's sexuality for crying out loud. It's just crazy. It's nuts. All right. So you know what's interesting about this? A little more positive word of interest. Uh, Two parents can have uh, multiple kids and the kids be all different. Though the kids are the same. It's it's very interesting. You you can have kids, but they just be so different. Isn't that weird? You know what that means? Parents should not engage in standardized parenting. You should not parent your kids the same way because they're not the same. So one of the most often misinterpreted verses in the Bible is Proverbs 22, verse 6. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. And people throughout the ages have taken comfort. If you have a rebellious teenager, but you raise that kid in a Christian background, concerned parents say, based on Proverbs 22.6, I'm hopeful he'll return to the fold. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. Now, I think he should be hopeful. Because God is good and concerned about your kids. But Proverbs 22.6 is not even saying anything remotely close to that conclusion. Here's what it actually says, looking to the Hebrew. Train up a child 
according to the unique way with which that child has been created. Because even when that child is an adult, he's not going to depart from God's unique design for his temperament and personality. Isn't that true? You can see certain personality traits in your children when they're very young, and they remain that way when they get older. There's nothing right or wrong about personality or temperament. That's what makes us special and unique. And so Proverbs 22.6 is actually saying, parents, you're the experts on your children. Study them. It's not the school teacher's responsibility to do this. It's yours. It's not the Sunday school teacher, vacation Bible school responsibility. It's not the children's. It's yours. You birthed them. Train them up in the way they should go. Study them. So look, one boy likes baseball and the other boy likes stamp collecting. Don't make the stamp collector play baseball. Don't make the baseball player collect stamps. That's a little bit of an oversimplification, but study the children. And the parents who say, well, this is the way it was done with me when I was your age. Too bad. You don't parent the way it was done with you. You parent, you train up a child according to his unique style and temperament, that kind of thing. So here you got Esau. He likes to get out there and go to the deer stand. And, you know, and the other guy doesn't like to do that kind of stuff. That's, that's all that's going on. Same parents, totally different kids. Now it gets bad. Verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because. See, the word because, parents, grandparents, that's not acceptable. It has to be anyway. <laughs> We can't love our kids and our grandkids because of anything they do. It has to be in spite, anyway. I love you anyway. Why? Because of who they are. They're yours. They're your kids and grandkids. It has to be unconditional love. Unconditional love. So anyway, Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste, because he, Isaac, had a taste for game. But Rebecca loved Jacob. You talk about a formula for disaster, for crying out loud, the parents are choosing favorites. It's no wonder Isaac and Ishmael come to be at odds with one another for crying out loud. The seed of that is being birthed right here in parental favoritism. Verse 29, when Jacob had cooked stew, Esau came in from the field and he was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, please let me have a swallow of that red stuff. He didn't even know what it is. Just red stuff. It turns out to be lentils, we'll see in just a little while, which is still served in the Middle East today. <laughs> but Esau is just so hungry, you know. He's just starving. I don't get what it is. Pasta, that's good. I thought it was good. I don't get what it is. Tomato sauce, nothing else. Good. Give me a straw. Just uh, give me some of that red stuff is what, <laughs> is what he said. Uh, oh, I'm famished. And therefore, his name was called Edom, meaning red. The Edomites come from Edom. You know, this whole mess... Middle East situation could have been avoided if Jacob just gave him some soup. (laughs) Why didn't he? He was a creep. Why didn't he? But they didn't like each other. That's why. I blame the parents. They didn't like each other. So he doesn't. He makes a deal. Verse 31, Jacob said, first, sell me your birthright. What? I get the impression this is not the first time he thought about that. That's bad. And good. It appears that Jacob valued the birthright. What's the birthright? Material and spiritual blessing for the firstborn. Materially, when your father dies, you get a double portion of his inheritance. But spiritually, 
You become the spiritual leader. In this case, Jacob would be in the line of promise. He would inherit that passed from Abraham, Isaac. Should have gone to Esau, firstborn. Jacob says, I want to be in the line of promise. He valued that. So he says, give me your birthright. Which is very interesting to me, because we know that God, by divine election, chose to choose Jacob. And yet we see, by human, Danny, here's where I go with this, by human choice, Jacob got it in a fleshly, sinful way. So God's plan has always worked out, but it doesn't rule out human agency. So anyway, Esau in verse 32 said, behold, look, I'm about to die. No, he's not. Come on. We're going to get lunch here eventually, right? I know we sort of feel, I'm so hungry, I'm going to die. No, we're not. Come on. You're going to be choking down some food before you know it, and you're probably going to live until then. You're not going to die. You know what? He's just so caught up with immediate gratification. Just meet my material, my fleshly needs. I'm about, I'm about to die. And so he says, therefore, of what use is the birthright to me? I don't care. Hebrews calls him, in Hebrews 12, verse 16, an immoral and godless person, Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. You know what a godless person is? A godless person who is someone who's bent on immediate gratification of physical needs. That's a godless person. It's a person who can't say no to fleshly pleasures in order for spiritual gain. A godless person who says, I want immediate gratification of my material fleshly needs. I don't care about spiritual values, that kind of thing. So that's kind of what's going on here. What use is the birthright to me? Verse 33, Jacob said, first, swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. In comparison to the birthright, he wanted what the world had to offer. And so he sold his inheritance, his spiritual inheritance, for some soup. And sometimes... We're prone to do the same. Forfeit rich spiritual blessing, like the illustration I gave you early with the guy who got involved with this woman who's not his wife. An elderly couple, you think, my heavens, you sowed your wild oats already. It just shows you how weak uh, we are, and regardless of where we are, where our station is in life. And uh, they forfeited Certain spiritual blessing. No, not, not the love of God, not salvation. I didn't say that. But they surely forfeited certain spiritual blessing because uh, I'm going to die without you. Uh, give, you know, I'll exchange the, the benefits of my birthright for uh, some fleeting satisfaction of my physical, material needs. Ask God to strengthen us, <laughs> to protect us, to keep us from temptation, to help us to live for the best of what he has to offer, not the best of what the world has to offer, which isn't really good at all. And please notice from this, when people get outside of God's will, you know how they talk about two consenting adults, what two adults do in the privacy of their room? You know, it's kind of, Can you see the ramifications of sin? 
It's, you know, we sin all the time, but don't understand sin either. We don't understand it. Sin has a pervasive effect. Even on the physical environment, it's crying out. The environment is crying out to God for the revealing of the children of God. The environment is waiting for the day when it can be set free from its futility by us coming into our own when we consummate the relationship with the Lord Jesus, the cause of environmental pollution is our moral and ethical pollution. You see what I mean? The environment is ready to be free of all that. So our sins have far-reaching effects. In this case, it's the Middle East crisis. It's the animosity between the Jews and the Arabs down to this very day. And it all emanates from here, the conflict between... uh, brothers, that kind of thing. Father knows best whether we get it or not. So uh, just close with this. It's good to wash hands before you eat, right? Because we know about germs. We've even seen some germs through microscopes in high school and biology class, stuff like that. We know about germ theory, but they didn't always. But even before we discovered germ theory, God told Israel way back in Leviticus, wash your hands. He said, if you go to a funeral, handle a dead body and dead animal, anything like that, wash your hands. Then he said, before every meal, wash your hands. They easily could have said, why? What's up with that? Because they didn't understand microscopic world and germs and stuff like that. Not too many hundreds of years ago in France, they were noticing a high mortality rate uh, when women were in labor and birthing their children, they died. They couldn't understand it, and they saw a connection. The doctors who were delivering the babies prior to that would also be handling cadavers, doing autopsies, and doing stuff like that, disease-ridden bodies. They didn't understand what they call it, aseptic technique or something today. Lisa knows about all this. Basically, you clean it. You know how you visit someone in certain places in the hospital today? You put on gowns, and you wrap, and you wash your hands. You know this kind of deal. We understand all this. But God, who created the human body and knows how all this works and understands germs and all that kind of stuff, said, just wash your hands, but he didn't give an explanation. He just said, he just, said just do it. And when people did it, they didn't die. And when they didn't do it because it didn't make sense to them, they died. Father knows best. He's not trying to cramp our style. He wants us to live victoriously. and So he's given us the formula for victorious living. It's in the Bible. You don't have to obey God to be saved. But saved people are prone to obey God. <laughs> yeah, we respect him more. Once you get saved, you respect him more. And you do what he says. Yeah, We should obey God more. Lord Jesus, you know what's best. Thank you for your wisdom. You being high and lifted up, you see all things. You're the most high God. Thank you for your patience with us. We can't hardly tolerate one another. We're sickened by what's going on in the world, and we're part of the problem. And you remain long-suffering, patient, not willing for any to perish, but for all to be saved. Thank you, O God, that the door is still open for redemption. We pray that you would complete your family. There's lots of room for more. Thank you for being gracious to us and merciful and not fair. Thank you for not giving us what we deserve, but for giving us yourself, crucified, buried, resurrected, so that we could be free from the penalty of sin. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God bless you folks. See you next week. Genesis 26, maybe.